0: Our text for today comes from Luke chapter 21, verses 10 through 19. We're continuing through the book of Luke. We've been in Luke for some time now, and we are um, nearing the end, kind of, sort of. Uh, probably only two or three years left in Luke, I think. Uh, we'll be done with it eventually, but uh, but we come to Luke chapter 21, verses 10 through 19. My title for this week uh, is, Gird Up Your Loins. This is, as far as sermon titles go, I guess a more risque sermon title. Um, but it's a biblical phrase, so I don't think it to be a, a, an inappropriate one to use in church. Um, but girding up your loins, if you're unfamiliar with what that is, maybe you've read it in the uh, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, or perhaps uh, in the New, and you've thought, what on earth does that mean? Um, and you've just moved along. Well, let me tell you what it means. It's nothing really that weird. Uh, it has to do with the way men in Old Testament times uh, in biblical times would dress men in those times wore something a lot more like women today wear, right They wore a type of robe that went uh, full length it was a, a or at least most of the way down um, it, was a, it was it was it was a robe i mean there 's no other way to describe what it was than a robe, but it was something that if you were going to do any sort of hard labor or if you were going to go into battle, if you were going to do anything that required any sort of amount of mobility uh, and limberness, uh, you would have to do what's called girding up your loins. You would have to gird up your loins, meaning that you would have to take this robe and tie it up in a way that your legs were freed up and you could move around. You could do work out in the field. You could go into battle. You could do whatever was needed to do. This was called girding up your loins. Uh, and in fact, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse, verse 13 speaks of preparing your minds, uh, which could also be correctly translated, gird up the loins of your mind. That would, that would be an appropriate interpretation of 1 Peter, this idea that, uh, that when a, a person in the Bible would gird up their loins, they would do so because they were about to do something serious, something that required mobility, whether it was going into war or whether it was engaging in some sort of hard work. This was something that was necessary to prepare to be able to do the task well. So when 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 speaks of, of girding up the loins of your mind, it's the idea of preparing mentally, spiritually for what is to come. Preparing for something that is going to require you to be ready for action. And by and large, that's how I view this passage of what Jesus is saying here uh, in his Olivet Discourse. That's what is uh, this collection of passages here in chapter 21, as oftentimes called, it's called the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus and his disciples are on the Mount of Olives, and he is uh, proclaiming these things to them, and a lot of what he says to them, it is dealing with actual events that are coming for his disciples, that are, that are in many of them in their future, uh, that times will come when he, he predicts the destruction of the temple. He predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. He predicts, predicts war and persecution. Um, all of these things are actual events that many of the disciples saw in their lifetime. But at the same time, in the Olivet Discourse, there's a great amount of prophetic language that is used by Jesus. In fact, he speaks of the return of the Son of Man. He speaks of his second coming, which, as we know, the disciples were not uh, privileged to see. We have not seen yet. Is still to come. And so much of what is discussed in this discourse, in this collection of teachings that Jesus gives on the Mount of Olives, is both has meaning for the disciples, but also has meaning for us today, looking towards the future. And I think Jesus, as he is speaking to these disciples, and and also as he is conveying to us and communicating to us... The time has come to gird up the loins of our mind, to prepare for action for what is to come, to prepare ourselves to be able to do what is necessary. So let's read our passage today in Luke chapter 21. We'll be reading 10 through verse 19. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilence, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Let's pray. Lord God, we are humbled at the reading of your word. I pray that you would bring us to a position with regards to this text, with regards to Scripture as a whole, uh, a posture of humility, a posture of seeking to understand, seeking to be taught, seeking to be molded from the text, by the text, rather than molding the text to our needs and our uh, desires. Lord, I pray as I uh, teach this passage that you would speak to the congregation, um, that you would guide uh, my words, my thoughts, and that it would be glorifying to you and edifying to the church. And We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in our passage today, as we see, Jesus starts in the first couple of verses by giving a description of what will become of the world when judgment is near at hand. What the end of the age will look like, which is point number one for our sermon today, signs of the end of the age. This really is what Jesus is laying out in verses 10 through 12. He's laying out these signs that will come, that will, that will inevitably come when the end is at hand, when the end is near. And Jesus lays a pretty bleak picture of the future for his disciples here as for what the future holds, what is to come, what is in store for the disciples and for the world. He says that there will be wars, there will be natural disasters, there will be famine, there will be disease. This was likely very hard for the disciples to hear, probably very frustrating for them in light of what we have established, if you were here last week, uh, was the, the kind of broad idea of what the Messiah would do in the world. The Jews had an expectation of what it would mean when the Messiah came into the world. From their perspective, perspective, what they expected to happen was that the Messiah would come, would free them from their uh, persecution, from their bondage to uh, the Roman government, would create for them this great and awesome life, would return them to the former days of the Old Testament and the great kings of of David and Solomon, to the, the glory days of Jerusalem, right? This was the Jewish perspective, that this is what would happen when the Messiah came, that he would come fighting and ready to reclaim what was rightfully the people's politically and culturally and what jesus has said previously when he predicted the destruction of the temple that was a a major blow to uh to the disciples who were primarily jewish but even more so now as jesus goes on to say not only that what awaits you what awaits the world now that the messiah who is me has come is in fact Persecution is, in fact, famine, pain, suffering. Very bleak picture was painted that was likely very hard for these disciples to hear. Mind you, this is before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The disciples are still not completely sure what Jesus is going to do and how he's going to do it in the world. They're confident that he is the Messiah, that he has come in the name of the Lord, that he is the Son of God. But even they are are not fully an understanding of what Jesus is going to do here on earth. And for them, this must sound terrible. Like, almost like Jesus is going to fail in his task. You mean after you have already come and we we know that you're going to go away, we're going to have to face all this bad stuff? I thought you were going to save us. I thought you were going to free us from this. And yet Jesus says, this is what is to come. This is what is to come. And we have to be careful when we read a passage like this, and we read of the, the wars, uh, the famine, the disease that is to come, because it can be very easy for us to fall into uh, to what could be called, what I've called previously, headline eschatology. That is, that we gain our view of the end times, and we, we perceive when the end is coming because of what we see in the world around us. This is super common in uh, kind of pseudo-evangelicalism today, this uh, taking of what we see happening in the world around us and saying, oh my goodness, well, the Bible predicted this would happen, so the end must be right around the corner. Jesus is coming back like tomorrow, or he's gonna come back at this time. We hear this all the time from various television evangelists, various um, people on, in, all over the place who seek to predict when Christ is coming, right? Or, or what is gonna happen or when this is gonna pl- take place based on what they see happening in the world around them. But I'm, I'm here to tell you that before Jesus' time, after Jesus' time, in between when he lived here on this earth and now, there has always been wars. There's always been disease. There's always been famines. There's always been natural disasters. These things have always happened. This doesn't mean that the end is not near. I'm not standing up here telling you that you've got plenty of time, that, that the end is not near. But I would propose to you that Ever since Christ ascended, ever since Christ's time here on earth to the present, we have been living in the end times. We have seen these things taking place around us. We have seen them happening, and we look forward to the coming day of Jesus Christ when he will return to consummate his kingdom. But we need to be careful that we are not looking around us, trying to figure out, trying to read the layout of of the world around us and gain some sort of roadmap for what is going to happen in the end. This is a danger, and we can easily fall into this. And Jesus' purpose in telling them this is not to give them some sort of way to predict the end, not to give them a timeline, but rather to prepare them for what is to come, to gird up their loins. They're hearing of this, it's not intended for them to then sit down with a calculator or an abacus or whatever they had and and Try to figure out, okay, when is the day going to be? Rather, Jesus is telling them this so that they can prepare their minds, gird up the loins of their minds, be prepared for what is to come, not to be surprised by it. And indeed, persecution, famine, all of these things do come. And yet, as we see in point number two, in the midst of persecution, there is an opportunity for the gospel. Verses 13 through 15 in our text say this. Speaking of these times when they will be brought up to the synagogues and and prisons before kings and governors, he says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. It's very easy for us, I think, as believers, to wonder why it is that we find ourselves in certain situations, is it not? It's easy for us to throw ourselves pity parties, I think, to wonder why it is that the Lord has put us in this situation, why it is that the Lord has let this happen to us. It was true of the psalmists, right, who would oftentimes say, Lord, why are you doing this to me? Why is it that my adversaries are winning and beating me and surround me on all sides? Have you forsaken me, God? It is super common for us to do that. But we can be assured by Romans 8.28 that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We see that again in this passage also. As Jesus has indeed painted a bleak picture of, of what is to come. And these disciples saw that full well, and we see a lot of that coming even in the book of Acts, written also by Luke. We see the persecution, the suffering that they endured at the hands of the Jewish leaders and of the Romans. But we also see in this passage encouragement, hope in verses 13 through 15. We see Jesus saying that this time, when you are brought before these kings, when you are persecuted, when you are brought before the governors, This will be your opportunity to witness, your opportunity to share the gospel, to proclaim the good news. In other words, even in your suffering, I have a purpose. I have a plan that my gospel would go forth, that the kingdom of God would spread, and that my name would be made known and glorified. The Lord's plan to spread the gospel seems inevitably to ride on the coattails of, of persecution, does it not? In this case, in the case of these early Christians, who would have been unlikely to gain an audience with many of these people in high places and positions of power, it would have been unlikely to gain an audience with them or get their attention, and yet now the Lord has provided a way. He has given them a platform for which to share the gospel with kings, with rulers, This is a super encouraging and helpful passage to these disciples and also to us because it also helps us to realize that the weight of the responsibility is not on us ultimately, but it is on God. As I have named this sermon from our passage today to gird up your loins, this is by and large a call in our text to gird up our loins to get ready for the trials and tribulations ahead. Yet now in this portion of text, Jesus says, here is one thing that you do not need to work to prepare for. He says, because I will give you a mouth and wisdom. In verse 14, he says, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand on how to answer. We need not to fear what it is that we will say when we find ourselves in the midst of persecution. We need not worry about whether or not we will anathematize when the time comes that we find ourselves facing hardships and persecution From the world. Jesus says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom. Two necessary ingredients for us to be able to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Both, one, wisdom, that is the understanding of the truth, the understanding of the good news, that comes from Christ, but also a mouth with which to give it, a means by which to proclaim the good news, to proclaim the truth to a world that desperately needs to hear it and we see one example after another through history of men who have stood firm in the face of serious persecution even looking down the barrel of death itself and speak boldly of the faith to which they hold think of the example of stephen in acts the first christian martyr ever we see the example of paul who was over and over again given the opportunity to speak before governors authorities because of his persecution and over and over again proclaimed Christ's resurrection. We see the example of Martin Luther, the great reformer, who stood before the assembly defending the doctrines set forth in Scripture, as he said so famously, My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. We see the faith, the the firmness, the resolve with which these men stand and look down, look at the face of their persecutors, looking down the barrel of death itself, and say, the Lord is good. He has not forsaken me. I will not forsake him. Why were they able to do this? Why is it that Stephen was able to to proclaim the good news as he is being killed? Why is it that that Paul and Martin Luther and and John Huss and all these other great men of the faith who have been persecuted and even killed for their faith were able to stand boldly and in the midst of their persecution, even at the time of their death, proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ? They were able to do so by the grace of God granted to them. The same grace that is granted to us. This is the good news that we have, the encouragement that we can take from this passage, that yes, persecution will come. Yes, hard times are ahead for each and every one of you. In fact, all who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. And yet we can trust that in the midst of that persecution, God's grace is so sufficient that he will supply our needs. He will supply our wisdom. He will supply our boldness. He will supply what we need. then the question has to be asked, but just how bad will it get? This is point number three. I think verse 16 and 17 really do depict just exactly how bad this persecution will get. As we see in this passage, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. The answer to the question of how bad will it get It's pretty bad. Jesus says here that not only will your kinsmen turn against you, but your own family will turn on you. This passage is like a parfait of good news and bad news, where where we receive bad news to start with, and then hope and encouragement and good news on top of that. And then on top of that, another layer of bad news, and then good news on top of that. We see here some terrible, unfortunate, bad news that Jesus says even family members will turn on each other. Jesus here is returning to something that he's already said previously in the book of Luke. In chapter 12, verses 51 through 53, Jesus said, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus is saying what he has already said, that there will come a day when even family members will turn on each other. Why? Because of the gospel. This idea of family members turning on one another, of fathers and mothers even turning on their children and turning them over to authorities. What what does it mean that he says uh, they will be delivered up by their parents? It means they'll be turned over to the authorities probably to be put to death, to be punished. Even killed for their faith in Christ Jesus, this is what they are turning them over to. And to be honest, that thought makes my stomach because I think about my my own mother who I love greatly if you know uh, if you've known me for a while you probably know that I'm really close to my family I'm one of five kids um, my dad died when I was uh, when I was young and so my mother um, left to to raise all five of us kids just did an amazing amazing job and and I, I think back over my life and just my mother's kindness and her grace her Selflessness to raise all five of us kids, to deny herself over and over and over again, and and really to just give all for for her children. My mother did that in a huge and dramatic way. The idea that that a mother like mine, when I think about my mom and her turning me over to authorities to be persecuted or even be put to death, turns my stomach. I can't imagine the just the the heartbreak that that would bring, the, the way that would feel, how the betrayal would, would feel to be given over by my very own mother to be persecuted and killed. I think even more so than that, when I think about my own son, when I think about either one of my sons and the idea that a parent could turn their child over because their child's faith in Jesus Christ, turn them over to be killed, to be persecuted, to be put to death, that really turns my stomach. Even taking uh, uh, my son to uh, a place, uh, a babysitter or a daycare, and when he cries and, and you know, clings to me and doesn't want to be left, I think we all can understand even that kind of breaks our heart a little bit, doesn't it? When we drop our kids off and then have to leave them and they're crying, say, Mommy, Daddy, don't leave me. That's heartbreaking. First week of daycare was terrible for me. I was sick all the time. Hated it. Think about that. Only you are taking your child and you are turning them over to the authorities to be killed. That's what Jesus says is coming. He's telling his disciples this. We see this even in our world today. If you were at all familiar with the way it is in Islam, for a a Muslim parent to have a child that then accepts Christ and becomes a Christian means that they are going to disown them more than likely. That they're going to be cast out that perhaps they'll even be persecuted by their own family. For many people in the world today, this kind of persecution is absolutely real. It is absolutely real right now. It is not something that they have to think about or dream up. It is the reality they're living in. These are hard realities. Yet Jesus says that this will happen. He then gives a succinct declaration to describe the extent of the Christian's persecution that awaits. He says, you will be hated by all. Do not seek comfort from this world. You will find none. Do not seek approval from this world because as long as you are obeying God's commands, you will find none. You will find no approval. You will find only disdain, only hatred. Why? Because the darkness hates the light. The darkness hates the light. So long as we are proclaiming the good news of the gospel and living our lives in a way that accords with God's word, we will be hated by the world. In fact, if you find that you are widely accepted in your beliefs and in your your proclamation of the gospel and of the good news by the world at large, then there might be something wrong with the way you're doing it. This is why you notice the quote-unquote pastors and biblical teachers and religious leaders who find uh, success in the world of politics or in media and who are tend to be the ones brought before the cameras and, and, and use kind of as spokespeople uh, for agendas, the ones who the politicians will oftentimes bring up or align themselves with. Most of them, not all, but most of them have already compromised on the truth. That's why they're finding love and acceptance from the world is because there's very little light going into those dark places from that person. But then finally, point number four is the perseverance of the saints. As I've said, this is kind of a, a good news, bad news parfait that Jesus is giving us here. But he tops off this, uh, this statement, this passage with this bad news, this good news, he tops it off with this beautiful ending where Jesus leaves his disciples with an encouraging word. Let's read in verses 18 and 19. After all of this, he just said about this persecution that has to come, Jesus says this, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. And the last two verses of our text, we see on display one of the most hope-filling doctrines available to the church. This doctrine, as I've titled uh, in this last point, is called the perseverance of the saints. I love this this text, as, as much as any, gives us a perfect opportunity as as we, as your pastors, teach through the Word. It is, it is our privilege and joy to get to take opportunities in Scripture where these doctrines that we believe, that we hold to, that we love so much, are so clearly laid out and present them to you. And this is a case today where uh, where the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is so clearly given and delivered in this passage, and if you're unfamiliar with this doctrine of perseverance of the saints, uh, I would offer to you um, a, a, I think, a valuable definition, kind of pretty succinct, uh, by A. A. Hodge uh, in his work *Outlines in Theology*. He says this. I believe this is a good definition uh, of the doctrine of. The Perseverance of the Saints, he says, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectively called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. So to put it a little bit more succinctly, whomever the Lord has saved will persevere to the end, each and every one of them. There is no such thing as a real Christian that has failed to persevere to the end. Each and every person that the Lord has saved, he has glorified, as we think through Romans chapter 8. Hodge goes on in his, um, in his work to offer a two-pronged explanation of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and to give a defense of it. And I want to briefly consider uh, kind of the explanation that he gives The first prong of his argument for this doctrine is found in the clear assertions of Scripture. Consider John chapter 10, verses 28 through 29, where Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This passage clearly indicates to us that if we are in Christ, if we are his sheep, if we belong to him, then nothing could snatch us out of his hand. He goes on to say that all who are given to me are given to me by the Father, and my Father is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Christ encourages his people, he encourages his sheep, that if you are his, you belong to him forever. Romans chapter 11, verse 29 says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. First Peter 1 3 through 5 says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in you for kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And this is a hope-filled doctrine that our salvation is secure in Christ Jesus, that all of those who belong to Christ will persevere to the end. Scripture is clear. Those who have been called by God, justified by their union with Christ, will endure till the end. They will be finally saved. They will not fall away from grace. The second prong of Hodges' argument, which I think is is also worth considering and looking at, is that this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints logically flows from the doctrines that we already hold to be true, from what we know to be true. Let's just look at a few examples that he gives. He gives multiple examples. Let's look at just a few. The doctrine of election. Because of the immutability of God's decrees, We trust that if God has elected us to salvation, that he will never change his mind. He will never revoke this election. This reminds us back again to, if you're a part of our systematic theology class, the immutability of God, that God is unchanging, that he never uh, becomes better or worse or comes to a better decision or a different decision, but that all of God's decrees are sure and will not change. So from that, we can then infer and understand that if that is true, that if God sovereignly elects for salvation, then he will keep us. We see also in our union with Christ that if we are united with Christ in a death like his, we're also united with him in his resurrection and all the benefits therein. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says what? For there is therefore now no condemnation for those here in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. We see through the doctrine of justification this declaration that all the conditions of the covenant of works have been satisfied in Christ Jesus and that his righteousness is now granted to us. Our relationship to the Lord has now changed. We are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. We are his children, in fact. We will not be forgotten. Finally, we see the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who is our seal, our guarantee of our inheritance, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. These are just a few of the cinder blocks that make up the foundation for this beautiful doctrine. And some people struggle with this doctrine. They struggle because they see places in Scripture like this one before us today and think that it's implying that our efforts to endure are the grounds for our salvation. Because it finishes in verse 19 it says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Well, upon a, a reading of just that verse alone, we might conclude then that the way to save our lives is to endure. That the means for our salvation is our endurance, is our effort. They think that a call to persevere and the necessity of perseverance impl- implies some form of effort on our part, required to keep our salvation. But that is not the case. No effort that we can put in will ever keep our salvation. Why? Because our salvation is kept by God. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And while Jesus does imply here in Luke that our endurance is necessary in our salvation— In other words, if you have not endured, then you are not saved. That is a true statement. Uh, So Jesus does imply that, that our endurance is necessary, but he also implies that God will supply the endurance. Verse 18, he promises not a hair of your head will perish. He encourages them here and all throughout Scripture that our endurance, our perseverance that is required for us to be ultimately and finally saved is not supplied by us, it is supplied by God in His grace. How is it that Christians are able to endure hardships, trials, persecutions? Is it by our own efforts? Is it by our own strength? By no means, as Paul would say. It's only by the grace of God. Our endurance is supplied by God. There is no contradiction here between justification by faith alone and the grace of God alone in this passage. So yes, we are called to persevere and it is a necessary part of our salvation, but it is a necessary part of our salvation that is promised and supplied to us in Christ Jesus. It is not something that is brought to bear by our own efforts or by our own works or our own goodness. It is supplied by God's grace. As believers, we are given the call to persevere, but we are also granted the ability by God's grace. There is no more of a conflict here than there is to say that we must exercise faith in order to be saved. We have no problem by saying that right, that we must exercise Faith to be saved. There are multiple places in Scripture where we are told to have faith or to trust in Christ or to believe in Him. And such faith is necessary. Such belief is necessary for our salvation. But it is always supplied by God. None of us in this place who has faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation came to that faith by their own reasoning, by their own efforts, by their own works, but only by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, the regenerating work that God performs in our hearts to turn us from a position of hostility and enemy of God to a position of love for God and a desire to worship Him. Apart from that, that does not happen. Romans 3 is clear that on our own, we are sinners. We are guilty. We can do nothing to please God. Perseverance is a necessary part of our salvation, but it is supplied by God and his grace, not our own abilities. So take heart in that. Know that your perseverance, that yes, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. But that endurance is provided by God's grace. And our God is indeed very, very gracious. As we conclude, I would just want to encourage us the same way Christ encourages his disciples. I would encourage you in this place, take heart. Know that the the end is coming. The end is near. Persecution is a real thing that though we might not face very much here in our world, in our society, in our culture, we know that other people do, but we also know that persecution is promised to all believers. But as Christ encourages his disciples here, I would encourage you, take heart prepare for these hard times, prepare for persecution, but take heart, because the ability to endure, the ability to persevere, our ultimate hope and our salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone, not in our ability to work, not in our ability to hold ourselves in his hands. We are held, we are kept by God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.